Good morning, uh, church family. It's good to see you guys uh, this morning. We're, uh, we're going to be taking a little one-week break from our series in Genesis because uh, I felt like uh, as we uh, begin to enter into uh, a unique season uh, in the life of our church and uh, just really in our, our culture and our society right now, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of uh, division. Uh, it almost seems like the division is just increasing uh, by the day. Um, I, I really felt like I, we needed to address a couple of things just as a church family. Uh, and so, um, I mean, we're, we're living in a very volatile um, period of time. Emotions are high. Uh, people are frustrated. Uh, people are scared. Um, information is inconsistent. Uh, it's hard sometimes to know uh, what uh, sources of information to trust. Uh, and there's really two, two things going on right now in our society that are, are causing tumult. There's obviously the pandemic, it's COVID-19, uh, and there's division along the lines of how do we respond correctly to that uh, as believers. And then there's also the, the flaring uh, racial tension in our nation. And uh, I'll be honest, uh, it's been kind of a tough week for me. Um, I'm sad. Uh, yeah, I'm just sad. I'm sad as I look at the world around us. Um, I'm sad for uh, my African-American brothers and sisters who are grieving. Um, I'm sad for uh, just over the sin and over the brokenness that's in our country. I'm sad over the fighting and the anger uh, and the, uh, the harshness uh, of the words that we speak to one another. And so that's why we're going to spend some time in Romans 14 this morning. Um, we need what God has to say to us and in Romans chapter 14. Uh, I mean, we're, you know, you might have heard this term before. We live in, in an outrage culture, a cancel culture, right? Where if you if you disagree with me, then I'm going to cancel you. Your opinion doesn't matter. I'm, I'm going to shout you down. We live in an outrage culture where we're quick to form mobs and, 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 uh, and, and to cast judgment and condemnation on people who, who disagree with us. There's a lot of wrath, a lot of wrath in our society right now. There's a lot of, of, of self-righteous moral grandstanding and virtue signaling happening all the way from the you know, corporate level companies doing it to each of us in our individual lives can have a, a tendency to do it, whether it's what we post on social media or, uh, or, or the things that we you know, say when we're talking to our friends. Um, this is a precarious time. That's the bottom line. Uh, where there's disagreement between Christians on a host of things, including how to respond to COVID-19. Um, and so there are strong emotional opinions uh, on how to do this. And, and many of those opinions are often backed by genuine godly desires. So it's not, uh, you know, we, we can have Christians that can come down to two different conclusions on how to respond to something like COVID-19, and they can both be sincere and pure in their hearts and in their desire to honor God and stand on the Word of God. Um, and you'll have some say, well, you're, you know, uh, for example, you'll have some say, well, you're being selfish and you're not loving your neighbor by gathering together. You know, some churches that have decided to gather have been accused of that. And on the other side of the fence, you've got some saying, well, you're living in fear and you're disregarding scripture uh, and its clear commands by refusing to gather. And so both sides believe strongly that they're, you know, that their positions are backed by God's word and that they're honoring God by what they do. Um, so I, 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 um, uh, 
I decided to preach out of Romans 14 uh, originally uh, last week and uh, decided to do that before uh, the George Floyd video came to the surface and before uh, protests and, and riots started out across the country. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that, you know, God had us in this text uh, this week because I think that even though I wasn't, uh, you know, originally didn't, wasn't aware that there were going to be protests, you know, sparking all across our country when I preached uh, this sermon, now there is. And so uh, while the bulk of this sermon is going to be aimed towards how do we maintain unity and brotherly love in the midst of passionate disagreement on how to respond to COVID-19, we're also going to be addressing some and talking about uh, just the racial uh, uh, tension uh, and division that right now is really at a boiling point in our country. So um, the reason this is so important to address is because um, we need to be really careful not to give a foothold to the devil, especially in our church in Pillar DC. He loves to sow seeds of division and discord and disunity in the body of Christ. So we've got to be aware of that. But it's not just a dangerous and precarious time. It's also an opportunity. Like we have a tremendous opportunity to be a countercultural witness for the gospel, a bright and a shining light in, in a very dark day. Um, we have an opportunity to demonstrate to the watching world what selfless, sacrificial humility that considers others more significant than itself looks like. And because of the dangers and the opportunities, I believe that Romans 14 is an extremely relevant and important text for us to walk through together. So what we're going to do, in just a moment, I'm going to read Romans 14, and I'm just going to read verses 1 to 19. And then we're going to unpack the doctrine of the Christian conscience. Uh, it's probably that may be something that many of you have never even heard taught on before. So we're going to talk about what is the Christian conscience, and then I'm going to give you four exhortations from Romans 15 on maintaining unity and brotherly love when we passionately disagree on hot button issues like how to respond to COVID-19. So let's go ahead and read Romans 14, 1 to 19. This is what the Word of God says. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Even me, like right now. Give us humility. Help us to clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. God, may we humble ourselves before the knowledge that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God, may we humble ourselves and extend grace towards others as we're reminded afresh this morning of the grace that you've extended towards us that is so great and so unfathomable. God, may you heal division. God, may you bring your healing balm to just the wounds uh, that exist in our hearts, that exist in our society, maybe exist within our church. God, if there are disagreements or bitterness or unforgiveness in our lives, God, may you expose it. May you bring it to light. May we confess it and know that you are merciful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help me as I preach, as I talk about sensitive and delicate subjects. I need you. God, uh, I don't know the right things to say, uh, but you do. So help me to stick close to your word um, and to just rightfully uh, divide the word of truth. Help me to teach by your spirit, God. Help us to listen humbly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I said we're going to start off by unpacking, like, what is the Christian conscience, the doctrine of Christian conscience? So let's start there. Uh, So John MacArthur uh, says this. He says, the conscience is to our souls what pain sensors are to our bodies. It inflicts distress in the form of guilt whenever we violate what our hearts tell us is right. So the conscience is the alarm that goes off within us that either excuses or accuses our actions. It's like our moral compass. And I would probably even add to John MacArthur's um, 
definition there that not only does it inflect, inflict distress in the form of guilt when we violate what our hearts tells us is right, it, it, it also will warn us before we violate something that our hearts tells us is right. So oftentimes your conscience will keep you back from transgressing uh, as well. Now the problem uh, for the world is that sin has corrupted even our consciences. So uh, everybody has a conscience, even non-believers, but human beings, Romans 1.18 says that human beings suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. First uh, uh, Timothy 4 says that uh, the consciences of people are, has been seared. And First Timothy 1 says that our consciences have been corrupted. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5 says that people call good evil and they call evil good. And so literally our, our, our consciences can become so distorted outside of Christ that they're flipped upside down and, and wickedness is celebrated while goodness is, is called hatred and, and evil. And just because, it's important to point out that just because you feel something is good does not make it good. God's law is not subjective to our emotions and our will. It simply is. God's law and His Word is perfect. And it's just. And it exists unchangeably regardless of the opinions of human you know, will, regardless of culture, regardless of what the mob may think, regardless of how we feel. Now, when God saves us, he cleanses our consciences. So our consciences, the conscience of, of human beings is corrupt because of sin. Uh, they can even be seared uh, and, and distorted. But when God saves us, he cleanses our consciences. So he removes the guilt and he resets our moral compass or our conscience uh, in alignment with his moral will. Uh, he gives us a new set of values that aligns with his set of values. And God's set of values is the law of God, the word of God. Okay, So for the believer, the conscience is no longer disturbed or afraid of God's impending judgment because Jesus took that judgment in our place. And likewise, for the believer, the conscience is no longer distorted and corrupt because the Holy Spirit now dwells within us, giving us the desire and the ability to do the things that are pleasing to God. Our conscience has now been subjected to the will and the word of God. An illustration to uh, try to help us understand uh, our conscience and how the Holy Spirit and our conscience relate is uh, because, you know, one, one question that may come up is, well, if I feel you know, guilty for doing something wrong, is that my conscience or is that the Holy Spirit? Uh, and my answer would be yes, uh, it's both, right? So the Holy Spirit is like the shepherd uh, and the conscience is like the rod and the staff that guides and corrects us, okay? So the Holy Spirit wields the conscience to guide you and to convict you of sin when you go off the path, much the way, much the way a shepherd would wield his rod and his staff to guide and shepherd his sheep or to correct his sheep. So if you, for example, if you're a believer and you snap at your wife and you feel guilty about it, then uh, where, where is that coming from? Well, that's the Holy Spirit impressing upon your conscience, wielding your conscience to you know, signal to you. That's like that alarm, like I am wrong. I, I have transgressed what I know to be right. Now, in an, un, you know, in an unbeliever, a lot of times what can happen, not, see, non-Christians have the conscience. So it's like they, they have the rod and the staff, but they don't have the shepherd. 
they don't have the Holy Spirit. So there's no spirit to wield it. So the conscience might be there and it might exist. Um, and to some extent, even in non-believers, the conscience can keep evil in check. You know, that's part of why our world doesn't descend into absolute and utter moral chaos. Although some could argue, <laughs> like, really? Is that not what we're in right now? But trust me, it really could be infinitely worse. God holds back evil and wickedness in the world by several means. Number one, by giving us a conscience. Number two, by implementing governing authorities that, um, you know, that, that execute the law. But I mean, again, the conscience is corrupt. It's distorted. And governing authorities can be corrupt and distorted. They're meant to execute justice, but they do not always execute justice very clearly. And oftentimes, but I mean, so the way that we can know that the conscience exists in non-believers is that most people instinctive, no matter what the religious beliefs are, know that rape is wrong. We just instinctively know that is an evil and a wicked thing uh, to do, right? So there's a natural moral opposition to it. And when we hear about it, we get angry and we want justice on the one, on the perpetrator, right? Well, that's our conscience. It's a gracious gift of God that's keeping evil in check. But unchecked, uh, an unchecked uh, evil and a, and a seared conscience can also result. Uh, and it can happen in an individual and it can even happen in a society at large. Romans 1 talks about how people suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. And as a result, Romans 1.24 says that God has given them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So there can come a time where wickedness can begin to run so rampant that uh, the conscience becomes completely seared and doesn't even see evil as evil. So a good example of this on a, a, a large scale, a societal scale, uh, would be abortion. The collective conscience of an entire nation almost has been seared and they can look at something that is so clearly wicked and so clearly evil and they can call it good and they can even shout it uh, on social media. Another example would be slavery in the American South. There was the entire collective conscience of the entire nation turned a blind eye to it and there were many who even used the Bible, the Word of God to justify a horrible, heinous, wicked, thing in society. That is what you call a seared conscience, and it's the judgment of God upon a nation. It's the judgment of God. Now, thankfully, the Christian conscience is no longer seared. Uh, it's been restored. It's been renewed, but it's not perfect either because we're in a growth process as Christians. Sometimes we may feel that something is right or wrong, and we might be off. Uh, as we grow in maturity through reading God's word and being around other believers and obeying the word, the conscience matures. And also at times, two Christians may simply come to different convictions in their conscience on the same issue. Like, should we gather together again as a church because of in a pandemic? Because Hebrews 10.25 says not to forsake the gathering, uh, the assembly of, uh, together. Or should we not gather out of love for our neighbor? Two Christians may genuinely hold different convictions here without one necessarily being right or wrong or without one necessarily being weak or strong. It's just different. 
The issue in Rome, uh, in Romans uh, chapter 14, that Paul was talking about here was the issue of eating meat. So there were some Jewish background believers who didn't want to eat any meat because they were still very sensitive to meats that were unclean and they didn't want to accidentally eat any meat that was unclean. And there were also many Gentile pagan background believers who came uh, out of idolatry and they wouldn't eat the meat sold in the market because it had been sacrificed to idols. And so they felt like if they were to eat meat, that they would be participating uh, in uh, the worship of idols. And so, you know, the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So he's saying, look, meat is not inherently evil. There's, it is, we have the Christian freedom in the gospel to be able to eat meat. However, it's very important to notice that Paul doesn't spend his time trying to convince uh, believers who believe they shouldn't eat meat to, that they can eat meat, does he? He says, at the end of the day, what matters is the motive of your heart. What matters is, at the end of the day, if you believe that it would dishonor God to eat meat, then you ought not eat meat. And those of you who do believe that you eat meat shouldn't look down on those who don't. And those of you who don't shouldn't despise those who do believe that you can eat meat because both of you are convinced in your conscience that you're honoring God. This gets to the heart of why the Christian conscience is important. What matters is not the letter of the law so much as the spirit of the law. It's not so much what we do, although that does matter, but what's even more important is why do we do what we do? Paul says it like this in verse 17. He says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? So it's not a matter of do's and don'ts, in other words. It's a matter of the, the, the inside of you. It's a matter of the heart. God looks upon our heart. He's, he's more concerned with our motives. That's why Jesus said the entire law can be summed up in this command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second command is equally like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, like, you can follow all the do's and don'ts of the law, but if you miss that, you have missed the entire thing. If your motives are off, if you are not doing what you do and obeying the law out of, number one, a love for God, and number two, out of a love for people, you have missed the boat completely. You've missed it. The motives of the heart. That's where the Christian conscience is so important. Now, what we have here in Romans 14 is we have two, an instance where two believers in the purity of their hearts and with a desire to honor God's word come to two different conclusions on the same issue. Eating meat, not eating meat. Their conscience binds them. And to violate their conscience, Paul says, would be to disobey God. He actually says in verse 23, we didn't read it, but he says, whoever has doubts about whether or not he should do something is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed, uh, excuse me, proceed from faith is sin. So to violate our conscience would be to disobey God. So if two Christians' conscience tells them to do two different things on one issue, what do we do in those situations? How do we maintain unity and brotherly love amidst passionate disagreements on hot-button issues? Let me give you four exhortations from Romans 14 
on that. The first one is do whatever you do to honor the Lord. Do whatever you do to honor the Lord. So in verses 5 to 7, uh, Paul says, One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what Paul is talking about here is that some believe that the Sabbath day should be uh, observed on a specific day, which was most likely Saturday. And others believe that all days were the same, that it wasn't, you know, it didn't matter which day you celebrated the Sabbath. What mattered was the heart behind just observing the Sabbath. Uh, and then uh, again, some believe, uh, some Christian believers uh, believe that it was, they were free to eat meat and others refused to eat meat out of conviction. And so the bottom line Paul says is, whichever you do, you should be fully convinced in your own mind that, that that is what is honoring to God. That should be the driving motivation behind what you do. So uh, again, and it's, it's very interesting here how Paul doesn't try to convince. I mean, Paul knows that, uh, for example, on the Sabbath day, he knows that it doesn't matter which day you observe the Sabbath specifically. What matters is the heart behind the Sabbath. But he doesn't try to correct those believers who believe that they should observe the Sabbath on the Saturday. He doesn't spend all of his time arguing with them. Notice what he says in Romans 14.1. He says, uh, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What's the point here? Like Paul's saying, like, the point is, like, are our hearts pure before God? Like, we don't need to waste our time trying to argue with one another and determine who's right in these things. What matters, number one, is are we honoring the Lord? And number two, are we loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? I'd encourage you to examine, when we think about the way that we respond to you know, coronavirus, to examine your own heart and let your brother or your sister examine his or her own heart. Like, why don't you, for example, want to wear a mask? Is it to honor God or is it to stand up for your own rights? Or why do you want to stay isolated and not be around other Christians? Is it out of a conviction to honor God or is it out of fear? Our motives are important. Another important principle to point out here is that a good or a lawful thing can become a sinful thing if done with the wrong motives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you should do it all to the glory of God. So are you doing what you do because you are fully convinced in your own mind that it is honoring to God? Be careful that you don't prioritize your freedom in Christ over honoring Christ. It may be that eating meat sacrificed to idols could confuse non-believers and make them think that Christians worship multiple gods. It could be that not wearing a mask could cause non-believers to conclude that Christians don't care if elderly people die. Is that true? Well, the point is it doesn't actually matter whether or not it's true. <laughs> The burden is on you and me as Christians, as believers, the ones with the stronger conscience to lay down our own rights for the glory of God and the good of others when necessary. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, he says, Though I am free from all, 
I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So Paul's saying like, yeah, I have freedoms in Christ, but I don't always avail myself of all of them if by trying to enjoy my own freedoms, it's going to present a stumbling block and keep somebody from being able to come to Jesus or if it's going to bring reproach on the name of Jesus Christ or if it's going to, you know, uh, you know, give the church of Jesus Christ a bad name. So what might that mean for us today? Well, it might mean wearing a mask for the glory of God for the time being, even if you don't think a mask can actually stop the spread of COVID-19. The reality is that many of your neighbors think that it does. And we ought to have the humility, first of all, to recognize that we, as far as I, as I know, none of us are pandemic experts here in our church, number one. And so we don't really know. I mean, we can say we've read articles, number one. And number two, even if we did really know and we, and we had undeniable proof that masks don't stop the spread of COVID-19, it still doesn't matter because if our neighbors do, then we ought to love our neighbors more than ourselves. Second exhortations from Roman from Romans 14 is that we need to remember that we will all stand before the Lord as our judge. We will all stand before the Lord as our judge. Um, Paul says in verses 10 to 12, he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So one of the themes that's repeated over and over in Romans 14, uh, Paul says the phrase pass judgment five different times in this passage. And he's emphasizing over and over again, don't pass judgment on one another. And look at his rationale in verse 10. So he says, he starts with a question. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? And then look at the rationale. For... We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In other words, the reason you ought not to pass judgment on your brother is because you too are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. You are not the judge, in other words, is what Paul's saying. So it's not your place to to sit in judgment upon another person. And nothing should humble us more than knowing that we will stand before the judgment seat of God. God is a just and righteous judge. Psalm chapter 9, verse 8 says that he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. He sees everything and knows everything, including our hearts. All of it will be exposed and brought to light on the day when we stand before him. Because God is perfectly righteous and just, he will render exactly to everyone what they deserve. This should strike terror in your heart if you are not a follower of Jesus. Because what you deserve from the righteous judge of all the earth is wrath and fury. You have sinned against the eternally holy God, the judge of all the earth. You have sinned against him. You can try to make yourself look good on the outside, but he knows your motives And he knows your thoughts. He knows the wicked things that you've said under your breath. 
He knows the wicked thoughts that you've thought that nobody else knows about and that nobody else has seen. He knows that in your pride you have tried to excuse these things, to pretend that you can bribe your way into forgiveness by doing good deeds. As sure as I stand here right now, there is coming a day of judgment when you will stand before the holy God of the universe and you will give an account to him and it ought to make you tremble with fear if you are outside of Christ. But there is incredibly good news. There is a reason I want to maybe even alarm you and shake you this morning, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you are trembling a little bit, good. (laughs) Because honestly, I want you to, because the reality is, is that there is a judgment day coming, but there is incredibly good news. Because this just judge who must punish sin because he is a righteous God is also a merciful father who loves to extend grace towards the most vile, undeserving sinners, people that don't deserve anything but wrath. He loves to lavish grace on these people. Luke chapter 15 says that he rejoices over even one sinner who repents, even one. He will leave the 99 to go after the one lost sheep. And he is able to do this. This is possible. Because he loved us so much that the just judge of all the earth sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and he he dwelt among us as a man, fully God, fully man for one reason. And that was to die on a Roman cross to take the punishment for sinners. He experienced the full wrath of God as a substitute in our place so that you don't have to face the wrath of God on judgment day. Jesus died for you, was put in a tomb for three days. And three days later, because he's perfect, because he's pure, because he's holy, the grave couldn't hold him. And the the very power of Jesus Christ rolled the tomb out of the way. He walked out of the tomb. He's alive. He's seated in heaven. He's coming again. But because he has died for you, because he's risen from the dead, if you will place your faith in him and your trust in him, you will be forgiven of your sins. You will be granted eternal life. You will be not judged by God, but adopted into the merciful Father's family. He will set your love on you and He will never leave you or forsake you. He will lavish His grace upon you for all eternity. Oh, how He wants to do it. Don't be obstinate and stubborn. Don't dig your heels in. Don't let your pride keep you from humbling yourself before the judge of all the earth and coming to him for mercy. He's ready, he's ready to give it. He's ready to extend it to you, but you must repent of your sin. You must recognize your sinfulness before a holy God. You know, there's a lot of outrage in our culture against the injustice. And one of the things that this, this, this outrage shows us is that intrinsically in our hearts, we have a desire for justice. You know, and right now, uh, much of the, you know, the protesting and the rioting that's happening, it's happening out of a frustration and an anger that the, the justice system in our country that should be bringing the justice that people deserve is failing to do so. And so people are upset about that and they should be upset about that. But what this country needs more than anything to understand is we need to understand that if true justice were done across the board, every one of us would be damned to hell. 
for eternity. If that's what, if we really want true justice, then every one of us, including me, would be damned to hell for all of eternity. The only way we're going to stop hating each other, the only way we're going to stop stop sitting in judgment on one another is if we humble ourselves, is, is if we recognize how our own sin has contributed to all of this. We have got to stop digging in our heels and clamoring for our rights. So I'll just get real real with you right now. If you are a white person and you are a Christian, you stop making your first reaction defensiveness when your African-American brothers and sisters say, we are tired of systemic racism in our country, and instead be compassionate and empathetic and examine your own heart and love them more than you love yourself. Stop it. Stop trying to defend yourself. Let's humble ourselves before one another. And to my African-American brothers and sisters, you need to remember and you need to understand and place your hope in Romans 14.10 that says we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The Lord on high is judge. We are not judge. And as frustrating as it is, uh, there is injustice and there is systemic injustice. And we ought to uh, we ought to go and protest and we ought to call for justice to be done while also understanding that ultimately we are unable to bring about the true peace in our own strength that we desperately need in this world. That's why Jesus came. That's why our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new creation. Jesus is the perfect King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Prince of Peace upon whom's broad shoulders the government rests and it will never cease. He's the one that we look to. It's the kingdom of God that our hope is in, not the kingdom of this world. So I plead with you, brothers and sisters, be merciful towards one another. Be humble towards one another. Let's repent of our self-righteous anger and our self-righteous judgmentalism. Let's extend grace to each other. I mean, I even, this week I saw on Twitter, there's a, an NBA basketball player, Michael Porter, uh, who I think he plays for the, the Nuggets. Um, and he posted uh, something about um, George Floyd. And he said, you know, he called out the, the evil and the wickedness. Of the, uh, of the police officers that so ruthlessly murdered him in, in cold blood. And he said, uh, but then uh, he had the audacity to suggest that we ought to pray that God will change the hearts of these police officers who did it. And, and man, he was, he was ruthlessly attacked for that tweet. Um, and it, it, it tells us a lot about how angry uh, our society is right now and how desperately our society needs a picture of grace. Like they need to see what grace looks like. And, and brothers and sisters, it may mean that you even get persecuted, just like Michael Porter Jr. is experiencing a little bit of uh, this week by, by suggesting that we ought to love our enemies. Um, but it doesn't matter if we get persecuted. We need to love our enemies. It's what we've been called to do, and we're going to do at Pillar DC. Like that's what, uh, you know, if there's anything that our church is going to stand for, it's going to, it's going to stand for that. It's going to stand for loving people the way that Jesus has called us to love people, whether they're our enemies or not, no matter how much it costs us. If you're not a Christian, um, I want to invite you to place your faith and trust in Jesus today and uh, receive His grace. Um, I so want to see people come to know Jesus out of this.
We need revival in our country. Desperately. And I pray that God will use all of these events that are happening to bring people, to show people their own brokenness and their desperate need for a Savior. And I pray that God will rescue a remnant. I pray that God will will bring us to our knees. I pray that He'll do that for you. Please don't put it off. Please don't be stubborn. Please, please don't don't continue to be an enemy of God. Humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon Him to save you, and He'll do it. He loves you. We love you. Please message us. If you, if you want to know more about how to, how to start walking with Jesus and how to be forgiven of your sins, like we want to help you. So send us a message, private message me. Uh, email me, jared at pillarchurchsbc.com, and, and I'll talk with you. I'll meet with you. I don't care. Whatever we got to do, we'll help you. We want to. All right. I'm like way off my... Uh, my manuscript here, but we're going to move on to point number three. Uh, exhortation number three, submit your conscience to the word of God. Submit your conscience to the word of God. In verse 12, Paul reminds us that each of us will give an account of himself to God. And this is important because while conscience can help us discern between right and wrong, conscience is not king. So regardless of what I feel is right or wrong, if what I feel contradicts the word of God, It is my conscience that's out of line, not God's word. But too often, Christians even will reverse this and use their conscience to judge God's word as untrue and kind of pick and choose what they believe is right in the word of God. And what you're doing when you do that is you're elevating your own conscience and your own standard of morality and placing it above God. You are sitting in judgment upon God and upon his word. But my friends, it's the other way around. We are not the ultimate moral authority. I am not the ultimate moral authority. God is. And so when our conscience doesn't line up with the word of God, what we need to do is we need to bring our conscience in subjection to the word of God and ask God to help us see how we're in the wrong instead of trying to explain away clear passages in scripture. I like how Mark Dever puts it. uh, I think this is an important principle. Uh, He says that conscience can make a right wrong, but it cannot make a wrong a right. So... Like we said earlier, a lawful thing can become sinful if it's done with the wrong motives. So, um, for example, uh, if you believe that it's sinful to drink alcohol in your heart of hearts, uh, even though alcohol itself is not inherently sinful, if you believe that it would be sinful for you to do so, then it is wrong for you to drink alcohol and you would be sinning against God if you did it. Likewise, if your brother believes it's sinful to drink alcohol, and you don't, and you drink alcohol in front of him, you have sinned against your brother and against God. It is wrong. So you have taken a right thing, and it has become a wrong thing because of conscience. But what conscience cannot do is it can't make something that's clearly wrong a right. For example, you cannot say, I am convinced that Jesus is my king, so that means I don't need to obey governing officials anymore. (laughs) Well, that doesn't work. Because Romans 13 very clearly says that we must submit ourselves to and obey the governing officials that God has placed over us. Another example, you cannot say, I am convinced that God has told me it is okay to sleep with my girlfriend even though we're not married. 
Scripture clearly teaches that sexual relations is only to be had and enjoyed within the confines of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman. So, no, I don't care what your conscience says. It, you can't make a, right, a wrong a right. And uh, so Scripture is the objective truth that helps keep our subjective conscience from running off the reservation. Scripture is kind of what helps keep our conscience in check. And the more you read and obey Scripture, the more in alignment your conscience will be with it. And that's how you grow in maturity. Uh, Psalm 119.11, the psalmist says, Your word I have hid in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. So you see how even like hiding God's word in our heart helps align our conscience with the word of God so that we instinctively begin to obey God's word. It becomes more and more natural the more we grow in Christ, the more time we spend in his word. Fourth exhortation from Romans 14 I want to give you, and the last one, is do not violate your brother's conscience. Do not violate your brother's conscience. So look at verse 15 and 16. Paul says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. We should not grieve our brother or sister in Christ by our actions. In verse 13, Paul describes it as putting a stumbling block before them. If a fellow believer is convinced that eating meat is a sin, then it's sinful for them to do so. And if you, a meat eater, tempt them to eat meat by eating meat in front of them, you are putting a stumbling block in front of your brother. You are actually tempting your brother to sin. And friends, one of Jesus' strongest warnings is against causing your brother to stumble, especially those who have the weaker conscience. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, 6. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Brothers and sisters, that ought to grab our attention. This really isn't too complicated, guys. Loving one another means being willing to set aside our own rights for the good of our brother or sister. So that warning in Matthew 18, 6 applies to you if you have a brother or sister who has a strong conviction they should not drink alcohol and you were careless about flaunting your freedom to drink alcohol in front of them or drinking it in front of them, uh, if you cause them to stumble, like you will be held accountable for that. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation or something like that as you're, if you're, you're a Christian, but God will hold you to account. It's a serious thing. Don't cross. I mean, l- listen to what Paul says. He says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Why would any of us want to be the reason that somebody falls away from the faith or that somebody backslides? Like, God forbid we would be the reason that we would do that. So, and let's just get real practical right now for this current situation. You don't want to wear a mask. You think it's silly or it's government coercion, but some of your brothers and sisters are convinced it's the right thing to do. You may not think it makes a difference, but 
What matters is, do you care about them more than yourself? Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Many of you who've been a part of Pillar DC from the beginning, you know this passage well. We prayed this over our church as we started and as we were going through the core team phase last summer. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what this means is that if we need to wear a mask or keep doing Zoom meetings or keep practicing social distancing to love our brothers and sisters, we will do it cheerfully because your brother in Christ matters more than your rights. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. The context that he said that in is significant. It took place on the night of his betrayal at the Last Supper. He had just finished washing his disciples' feet. Jesus humbled himself by doing the work of a servant, washing the feet of his disciples. And he was about to humble himself even further as the sacrificial lamb of God on the cross. And yet, though he knows he's about to endure that, his focus is not on himself but on his disciples. And Jesus calls us to follow his example in the way that we love one another. He says, you ought to do what I am doing for you, is what he tells the disciples in John 13, and us. That is a kind of love that will stand out in the midst of a divisive, outrage culture. I mean, it's almost unheard of in today's world. Brothers and sisters, We should not be passing judgment on one another. We should be deferring to one another. I love how Paul puts it two chapters earlier in Romans 12, 10. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Like we should be falling over ourselves to show honor to one another, to point to them and away from us and to go, no, no, you deserve the honor, not me. And that is why myself, Thomas, in Orion, as the elders of Pillar DC are calling you in this season to outdo one another in showing honor, to love one another with the love that Christ has loved us. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. Lay your lives down for each other. As Paul says, puts it in verse 19 of Romans 14, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Run everything you do through that lens. Ask yourself, does this make for peace? Does it build up my brothers and sisters in Christ? So ask that question before you post something on social media, before you speak the words that you speak in a private conversation. Even filter the attitude of your heart through that filter. Pursuing peace and mutual upbuilding takes a dying to self and to your own desires. We're in a season of sacrifice. We're all going to have to be a little uncomfortable for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the sake of our witness to the world. I promise you this. If we will do this, if we will do what and pursue what makes for peace 
and for mutual upbuilding. If we will do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but considers, uh, and consider others more significant than ourselves, if we will do that, then the devil will not have a foothold in this church. And as, as long as myself and Thomas and Orion are here to say anything about it, we won't allow the devil to get a foothold in this church. And I pray that you will join us in that effort and join us in that resolve that we are going to lay down our lives for one another and clothe ourselves in humility. It will bring great glory to God and people will know that we are Jesus' disciples. And is that not in line with what God has called us to do in our mission? Is that not the way to help people know Jesus and make him known in D.C. and around the world? I think it absolutely is. So, in light of Romans 14, I'd like to share with you some very exciting next steps for Pillar Church of Washington, D.C. I'm about to share with you some plans, our future plans uh, for resuming Sunday gatherings. Before I share these, I want you to keep in mind that, uh, uh, that these plans are in pencil. Uh, they could always change because obviously information is always changing, uh, but this is the way that we plan to move forward until further notice. Um, so here they are. Uh, beginning next Sunday, June 7th, Lord willing, we will gather again as one church body at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Crystal City, Virginia at 10 a.m. We have reached an agreement with this hotel. Uh, we're going to be posting the details on our website by Tuesday, and we'll also email them out. So if you are not on our email list, make sure that you click the link for the digital connect card in the description of the video and fill out that digital connect card so that we have your email and you can begin getting updates on the resumption of gatherings. Um, so we'll be sending that out by Tuesday. Uh, so per the governor's orders, uh, as most of you probably know, Northern Virginia is now in phase one and churches can gather for religious services at 50% capacity of whatever facility they meet in. Uh, and so we have reached an agreement with the Crown Plaza and the hotel is working with us to arrange the room so that proper social distancing will be in place. We are committed to uh, doing everything uh, legally and complying with the guidelines that have been set forth by uh, the state of Virginia. So masks will be required. Uh, seating will be six feet apart by family unit. So you can sit with your family, but each family would be seated six feet apart. The hotel is going to do all that for us. Uh, hand sanitizer will be readily available. Uh, we're social distancing before and after the service will be encouraged. Obviously, you know, we can't make you, you know, like refuse to, you know, touch each other, but we are encouraging you to refrain from doing that. Uh, and, uh, for, uh, you know, just be sensitive that, uh, you know, don't, don't go in for the big bear hug, you know, automatically with your brother or sister of Christ, because you have to recognize and understand not many people aren't comfortable with that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it may not be the wisest way to go about things. So just be sensitive to the way that you interact, uh, with one another. Um, just a couple of little more details. There is quite a bit of free parking on the street, uh, but if there's not any free park, street parking available, they're also offering $5 garage parking to anybody who's there with Pillar DC. And so you'll be able to park in the garage. So they were very gracious in making that extremely affordable for us compared to what it normally is. And Pillar DC will pay for your parking. Okay, so uh, so basically the garage parking will be free for you. Um, 
The space that we're going to be meeting in also is very large, uh, which is awesome because that means they, there's more than enough room for all of us to gather at once. So we're not going to have to do multiple services, one service, all of us in one room, properly social distance next Sunday, 10 a.m. Crown Plaza Hotel. Let's go. I'm so pumped, so excited uh, to be with you guys. Um, I, I want you to know that the cert, for those of you who, uh, I just want to make this clear, if you are sick or if you are unwell, or if you have been exposed to somebody who has uh, tested positive for COVID-19 recently, or you suspect that they may have COVID-19, please stay home. Do not come and put others at risk. Uh, Or uh, if you're immunocompromised, or you're just not comfortable gathering yet, we understand that. So we're going to continue to live stream the sermon. Uh, We're not going to be live streaming the entire service. We'll just be live streaming the sermon. Uh, it will probably be starting at around 1040, 1035, 1040 a.m. on Facebook and YouTube live on Sunday mornings. And we'll also be emailing out an at-home worship guide with songs and lyrics as well as a prayer guide so that you can worship from home in that way. Uh, as always, if you've got questions, I know there's going to be questions and follow-up things Uh What I would encourage you to do, first of all, uh, you can jump on our fellowship call right after this that we're going to be having, where we're going to have a time of Q&A and fellowship, and I'll answer questions and clarify things there for you. Uh, And you're also free to email me, or you can send us a Facebook message, and I get those messages, and I can definitely reach out to you there, uh, and we'd be happy to to answer any questions that you have. So uh, let me close out our time of prayer. We've, We've covered a lot, and what I don't in the excitement of this announcement, what I don't want you to forget is the main, the main point <laughs> and the message of what we, just, uh, what we just heard from Romans 14. Guys, we, in everything that we do, we need to do it to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So let's clothe ourselves in humility, okay? Let's, uh, regardless of the differing opinions that we may have on how we're moving forward with this, uh, let's pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Uh, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. I thank you, O oh God, for the hope of the gospel. Jesus, I, I just find myself right now crying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for the day of your return when you will make all things new, when you will right every wrong. But God, we also thank you for your patience and that you are giving people time to repent. I pray that they would uh, avail themselves of that time, God, that any within the sound of my voice that have not repented and believed that right now, God, they would do so, that right now they would behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that they would repent of their sins, oh God, and trust in you, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, help us as your followers to, to be a light. Help us to love one another in the same way that you have loved us. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.